turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind, with beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code myths to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Norway of a master thief where we'll see that even bandits offer unpaid internships. The creature this week is big, venomous, and actually real. Well, the flowing nose hair isn't, but all the bad parts are. This is Myths and Legends, episode 172, Adventure. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, it's a fairy tale from Norway. It's set in the Middle Ages, and that's about all you need to know. So we'll jump right in. Come on, boys. I want to show you something. The cottager said to his three sons... And before you Google it, a cottager is just a person who lives in a cottage. The four men, the cottager and his three sons, came to a crossroads, and the father raised both of his arms. This was his gift to his boys, a life of adventure. They could go to make their own way in the world, fight dragons, marry princesses, the whole hero's journey package. Adventure. You're welcome, boys. The two older brothers high-fived. Wow, he was such a great dad. The youngest, though, he thought about it. Hey, was their dad just abandoning them in the woods, but framing it like it was some sort of cool adventure? Adventuring and fighting dangerous creatures to the death was the leading cause of mortality among fairy tale men ages 15 to 25. Didn't his dad read the pamphlets? The youngest brought out a pamphlet that read, Adventuring. Not even once. The cottager said that this was the kid's call to adventure, though. They had already crossed the threshold. He was out in it now. So exciting. The call to adventure was just you yelling adventure a lot, the son pleaded. But his father only stroked his beard and smirked. This was it. Ah, the refusal of the call. Fear, insecurity, and a sense of inadequacy can drive this part of the monomyth. The cottager put his hand on his son's shoulder. You're good enough, son. You can do this. The son stepped back. No. No, he couldn't. He had no dragon fighting or wilderness survival training, and frankly, he just didn't want to be homeless. Why was his father doing this? But his father didn't listen. Crisis averted thanks to great parenting. Maybe that was the true adventure all along. All right, well, have fun, boys. Next step on the hero's journey is meeting your mentor. Make me proud. Also, I live alone now, so I'll attack any unexpected visitors on sight, unless you return super rich. Bye. The three brothers embraced, wished each other the best, and each went down a separate road at the crossroads. The youngest brother sighed and started down on his own hero's journey. Mm. 
the youngest son burst through the door and slammed it behind him. Wow, that storm was rough. Oh, hi there. Are you the mentor? The old woman, who was just as surprised to see the young man, shook her head. She didn't know what that was, but he had to leave. The youth pointed to the door. Yeah, his father abandoned him at a crossroads, and he barely made it here. There was no way he was going back out there, so... Did she have any extra beds? The floor would work, too. The old woman said that her masters would be back soon. If he was there, they would kill both the young man and the old woman. They were bandits. Robbers. Killers. So leave. The young man looked back out at the storm. Yeah, no, he was going to take his chances with the bandits. There was a 100% chance of him dying in the storm, or because he got sick wandering around Norway wet in October. He asked what her deal was, and the old woman's head dropped low. She was only nine when she was taken in by the bandits and pressed into service. The youth frowned, commiserating. But then he thought about it. Wait, are the bandits, like, really, really old like you? No offense, of course. The woman shook her head. Nope. They were younger guys. Late 20s, early 30s. Wait, but then how have you spent your whole life in the service of these guys? It like a generational thing, or... The old woman stood. The story doesn't say. It does say that the young man should get out of there before they get back, though, because they'll kill him, if he's lucky. The young man took yet another look at the storm raging outside. Well, he'd try that luck. Night. It wasn't an hour later that the group of bandits returned, soaked to the bone. The youth, still awake, didn't open his eyes felt the floor shudder as they pounded past, each stopping for a few seconds to look at him. Who's that guy? What'll we tell you about visitors? The old woman said that he just came in here and wouldn't leave. She told him the bandits would mess him up. That was usually enough for most. The bandits asked if he had any cash on him, but the old woman laughed. Nah, doubtful. I mean, look at him. The youth felt a dozen eyes on him as he pretended to sleep. The bandits turned back to one another. Well, they couldn't just have people wandering in here. It looked bad. They should kill him, right? I don't know. Maybe he'd make a good servant, said someone toward the back. The robbers parted and revealed the young man. Hey, how's it going? Youngest brother, but the story just calls me unnamed youth, thieves said, extending a hand. The confused robbers shook it. Uh, okay, I mean, they liked his courage. I mean, yeah. If he had a mind to follow their trade, then there might be a place for him here. He threw up his hands. Hey, fun coincidence. It turns out he could follow any trade he wished. His father made that abundantly clear. When he abandoned his son in the dark forest forever, the robber asked the young man if he could steal, and he shrugged. He could learn. The man driving his ox to town stopped and stroked his beard. Wow, that there on the road is a nice shoe, he said to no one in particular. Leather with a silver clasp and all. I bet if I came home with that, my wife wouldn't box my ears. She does that when we're together for only a few minutes. Marriage is hard sometimes, but if I brought home a pair of shoes like that, she would be so happy with me. It's nothing without the other, though. Don't know why I'm stopped so long on the road saying this to myself, a simple medieval farmer. Moving on. The youngest brother, now called the youth, 
Listen to that meaty bit of exposition before the farmer driving the ox he was sent to steal traveled further on down the road. When the farmer left, the youth snatched the shoe and took off. Further on down the road, the man stopped again. Well, there's another shoe in the road. Wait, that's the mate to the one I saw earlier. That's sad for the rich guy who lost it, but now I can get both. Is it a bad idea to leave my ox? One of the most expensive pieces of property alone in the medieval dark forest so I can run back and grab that shoe so my wife won't box my ears as much? It is not a bad idea. Off I go. The youth kind of felt bad for the guy. I mean, he definitely needed someone to talk to and it was absolutely abuse what his wife was doing to him, but the thieves would do far worse to the youth if he absconded with this lone fancy shoe instead of robbing the farmer of the ox he was driving to the market. The youth untied the ox and took off. But he didn't go far. He rushed the animal out of earshot and came back. He had a plan. He arrived in time to see the farmer freaking out, not just because he lost his ox, but because of what his wife was gonna do to him when she found out. He held up a finger though and ran back home. I'm back on the road, walking our second ox to market. That way, when I return home with ox money, my wife will be happy about the ox money. She doesn't know how many oxen we have and, oh no! The farmer stopped explaining the situation to no one in particular when he saw a man hanging from a tree. The youth had two ropes, one looped around his armpits under his coat and the other tighter but not as tight around his neck. He was swinging from a tree. The farmer slowed with his ox. Well, that was sad. He didn't know what drove the poor youth to such an end, but there was nothing the farmer could do for him now. He continued on down the path. The third time he saw the same youth hanging on the road, the youth had used his apparently ample upper body strength to scramble up the rope each time without accidentally hanging himself in the process, run ahead, and then managed to, again, not accidentally hang himself two more times. Seriously, this is incredibly risky, so don't go pretending to hang yourself, pranking people to steal oxen in the fairy tale forests, or anywhere really. That has to be witchcraft, the farmer said to himself, when he saw the same guy wearing the same cloak, hanging for the third time on the same road. I should go back and see if the other two guys are there. Should I take my ox with me, or leave him here? in basically the exact spot the other one was stolen. The latter, of course, by Ox. The youth used his, once again, insane upper body strength to climb the rope without slipping and accidentally hanging himself. He picked his way down the tree, got the ox, and led it off into the forest. He heard the scream when he was far enough away, but then, less than an hour later, he heard something else. The youth looked back to the path, Oh no, come on, don't do that. The farmer had returned with a third ox. His idea being that if he finagled a really good price, he could maybe make up for losing the other two. The youth facepalmed. Well, he basically had to at this point. He tied the ox to a tree and ran a good distance down the road. He was out of ideas, but knew he had to take a shot. As the farmer passed, the youth crouched in the bushes and bellowed like an ox. The farmer's ears pricked up and he looked off into the forest. 
Wait, of course he didn't take the ox with him, and of course the youth stole his third ox when the farmer was gone. The band of bandits had no choice but to recognize the skill of the youth. They had sent him off to steal one ox, and he returned with three. Not only that, but he didn't need to use violence, and the farmer had never really even seen his face. They begrudgingly allowed the youth in their band as an apprentice, but the youth shook his head. No, no thanks. The men's eyes widened. What? He had just rocked that initiation. He had stolen more in a day than any of them. The youth nodded. Exactly. That's why he wasn't going to join the band as their apprentice. He was joining as their leader. The thieves laughed. But then they saw the youth wasn't laughing. He took a seat in the center of them. They had said it themselves. He had the single greatest haul of any of them. And this was a band of thieves, right? Not a band of guys who have been hanging around the longest. So, yeah. I guess, put up or shut up? The thieves held up a finger. Now look here, kid. The youth stood. Oh, sorry, no. That wasn't a suggestion. It was an order. From their leader. Put up or shut up. Because unless they could beat his record, they kind of had no recourse but to recognize his authority. He sat down at the head of the table and poured himself a cup of wine while the stunned room watched. But they didn't stop him. They did have to recognize his ability. But it was only because no one had tried that hard in a while. If they tried, they could you know, beat his record easily, right? So that's what they did. The next morning, the whole band left. Their goal was to steal as much as possible, and the person who did that would be the leader. As soon as they were gone, their new leader, the youth, turned to the old woman, who had greeted him when he arrived only a few days prior. They're going to kill me, aren't they? The youth asked. The woman shook her head. No, probably not. If they didn't come back with more than him, or even if they did, they'd just tie him up and turn him into the king's man. He would kill the youth. The youth took a deep breath and nodded. I mean, roundabout way of getting there, but it was still the same end result. All right, that was all he needed to hear. He waited another half an hour, just to make sure that none of the thieves forgot their phone or something and had to come back early, and he went out to the stables. He directed the three oxen back on the road and slapped them on the rear, knowing that they would find their way home on their own. The youth then saddled a horse, loaded it up with some bags, and loaded those bags with as much gold as he could carry. He then caught two more horses, put bags on them, and it wasn't long until all the gold in the hideout was on the animals. He nodded to the old woman, who had been a slave of the bandits her entire life and was not going to do a thing to stop the youth, and the youth rode off before 9 a.m. Come sundown, the bandits returned. Arms and stolen livestock laden with as much stuff as they could carry, only to find their home stripped of everything but the anachronistic copper wiring. And the old woman, who was laughing at them. She said he had left not an hour ago, and he had said something about going north, but then he had asked her something about how much a passage across the sea would be. The men didn't even have their horses so they left their ill-gotten gains and took off. The old woman looked left and right, scooped up a few handfuls of gold, and stole off into the night.
how the youth's kind of easy escape goes. But that will be read after this. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. These were looking for the youth riding south, so they didn't see the rich general knocking on a door that was less than a half-day walk east. Open up, old man, the general barked as he knocked on the door of the cottage in the woods. The cottager scrambled and flung open the door to the rich general as the general disregarded the middle-aged man and strode into the room. I will stay with you this evening, the general announced. The cottager bowed his head. Uh, No, sorry, he couldn't. The general was wide-eyed. That was not a question. The cottager dropped to the floor. He said he had no room for such a fine gentleman. He barely had a rag to lie upon, and they were miserable rags too. You always were a stingy old man, said the general, and you still are, refusing to take your own son in. The man's jaw nearly hit the floor. What? The youth had taken the horses and buried the gold in the woods before taking a general's uniform that he had found among the stash. He hoped there had just been a naked general running home one day, and not a dead naked general somewhere out there in the forest, but he had no way of knowing. He then went and pounded on his father's door. The father took his son into his arms. Wow, the hero's journey was so fast, and now look at him returning home, master of two worlds. The youth swatted his father's hand away from his face, That's not what this was. When his father had, let's be generous, released him to pursue any trade he chose, and that was being very charitable, he bound himself as an apprentice to a pack of thieves, and he did his time. He did better than any of them, and then he robbed them. Now they were going to pursue him across another continent while he married the squire's daughter, who lived a few houses down. The father stroked his beard. Master thief... So he wasn't a war hero general in a week's time? This was hardly a hero's journey at all. Well, maybe don't abandon your kids in the woods, the master thief replied. The father shrugged. I mean, it it worked out well for him and pretty much any kid in a fairy tale. If anything, you were a bad medieval parent if you didn't abandon your kids in the woods. The master thief grimaced. All right, well, lesson not learned. Also, Did the father not hear about the next plot point? About him marrying the squire's daughter? The father nodded. Oh, yeah, I mean, that couldn't happen. The youth, the master thief, said that if it was up to him, it would be done already. But there were certain traditions that had to be followed, 
and that required the cottager to go to the squire and ask for his daughter's hand in marriage on behalf of his son. The cottager laughed. And how would he do that? He was a cottager. He didn't even have a profession. What was he supposed to tell a squire? That his son was a master thief? The son nodded. Absolutely. Now go. It went about as well as it could have. After the youth beat his father with a birch cudgel, the middle-aged man went crying to the squire, who laughed at the idea of the youth being a master thief. But at his son's request, remember, with the cudgel, the cottager was insistent. So the squire relented. All right, how about this? If this so-called master thief could steal their roast from the spit on Sunday while all the household was looking after it, then he could marry the daughter. And so that Sunday, they had a beggar come to visit their house. Nothing suspicious about that. And there were a lot of people filtering in and out and they were all on the lookout for the youth. Not a ragged, stinking beggar boy whom it hurt to even look at. They tried to shoo him away, but he just lingered at the back door, asking for any alms from the master of the house. He was informed that the master of the house was back watching the roast in the kitchen. So the beggar nodded and limped to the front yard. The whole house jumped up in excitement when they saw that a fat rabbit had somehow slipped through the fence and was stuck in the front yard. The people asked if they could try and catch it. It would make an awesome addition to the dinner, but the squire, refusing to take his eyes off the roast, said that they were staying. No one thought it was weird then when two rabbits and then three had slipped through the fence and were jumping around on the grass, begging to be caught, killed, and eaten. The youth was still at the back door begging for alms, everyone avoiding him because of the smell and the sadness. And the squire thought about it. I mean, three hairs was three hairs. They didn't do the budget. He did. And this would help him out. Everyone out of the kitchen into the front yard to go catch these obvious distractions. Of course, when they returned with three fat hairs in hand, both the roast and the beggar youth at the back door were gone. The squire had to put on a happy face, though, despite everything, because he was having the priest over for dinner that Sunday. When he explained why they were having rabbit, not beef, and that it uh looked like his daughter was marrying a master thief, the priest could only laugh at the man for being made into such a fool by a poor youth from down the street. The squire cocked an eyebrow. Well, better watch out, lest he come for you. The priest pursed his lips and shook his head. Nope, wouldn't happen. These were the Middle Ages and he was a priest. He could read. He was very intelligent. The squire nodded. Okay. It wasn't long into the dinner when the squire had a visitor. He went to the door and saw a youth who looked like he had very recently showered. He asked the squire if the man had a roast. Because the youth had a roast. The squire forced a smile. Good job, but yeah, that was small potatoes. If his daughter was going to marry a master thief then the squire wanted to make sure that he was giving her away to a man who could support the type of life she was accustomed to. This three fat rabbit life, know what I'm saying? So he had another job. If the youth could do it, he could marry the daughter. The youth kind of figured this was how it was going to go down. He knew he wouldn't get to marry the girl on the first try. He asked for the mark, and the squire told him about the priest.
Father Lawrence, Father Lawrence, the angel called to the priest. The priest looked at the man wearing a white robe and wings in the tree. He bowed low. I am an angel, the being continued, sent from God to let you know you shall be taken into heaven for all your piety. Monday night I shall come fetch you in a sack, and all your gold and silver and world's goods you must lay on the lawn. Turns out you can take it with you. The priest, weeping, thanked the angel and thanked God. He rushed inside to get ready. He rewrote a sermon the next day, bragging to the town that he was going to heaven. And this is how to be just like him. Well, the next night he was waiting just inside the door for the angel's call. When the being beckoned the bewildered priest, the man dragged all of his gold from his house in a sack and climbed into the sack that the angel carried. The angel informed him that he had to go to purgatory first. The angel heard a muffled, of course, through the bag. There was a lot of crying at the end of purgatory, but they weren't tears of joy because he was about to enter paradise. The angel had left the priest, and the priest could only assume that demons were poking him with tongs because it was several hours of pinching before the first angel of the Lord came for him. Please, am I purified yet? Do let me out. It is worse here than hell itself. The angel rushed back with a knife and cut him loose from the bag. And the priest saw that paradise had way more goose droppings than the Bible led him to believe, because he was in the squire's goose house. He looked at the bag, covered in dirt and spots of the priest's blood, when he had been dragged through the street, breaking the priest's everything. With a groan, the priest knew exactly what had happened. He shook with rage as he screamed the master thief's name. Of course, the squire had no intention of marrying his daughter off to the master thief and was all the more pleased that he had all the priest's gold. The master thief, honestly, kind of expected this, so he insisted he would do anything. So the squire asked him to do the impossible. The youth was certain that with enough thought, nothing was impossible, and he wasn't wrong. When it came to stealing 12 horses out from under 12 riders, all he needed was 11 guys, two flasks of brandy, and the clothing of a female beggar. The squire really should have, like, sent out an email or something telling his employees not to let beggars sleep on the property when, you know, he's trying to keep out a kid who regularly disguised himself as a beggar. But alas, they did. And so the youth limped his way into the barn to get out of the cold. Out in the cold, however, the 12 men sat on the horses. And when they saw that the old lady was swilling brandy, well, they were letting her warm up in the barn. How about she let them warm up with some brandy? It said that the youth had two flasks, and in the second, he put, quote, a sleepy drink. He had 11 men catch the drugged riders before they hit the ground and place them astride on beams in the barn while the master thief and his posse rode off with the horses. When the youth arrived the next day, expecting yet another caveat, he got it. When the squire said that those guys were stupid, and don't worry, he had educated them about social engineering by beating them. The youth couldn't possibly steal a horse out from under him as he was riding it. The squire told him a time that he would be on the commons, and the master thief only nodded. 
The squire studied the hobbling old man, the one with the thick beard and scraggly hair, and the face curiously devoid of wrinkles. He must moisturize. Hey, did you see, like, some kid lurking in the woods looking to steal stuff? He asked the obvious old man. The old man's authentic beard that wasn't two goats worth of hair knitted together followed his head as he shook it. Nope, sorry, he was just on his way to a wedding. Look at this keg of meat he was carrying to lend credence to his cover. Oh, slowly too, might he add. He was very old. The squire said that he was more of a noble type and the old man was more of a peasant type, so would he mind going into a forest and looking for a sinister-looking kid? The kid could be disguised. The old man gestured to his keg and said that he would be happy to hobble painfully to the woods, but the cork fell out of his keg and he had to keep his finger in the tap or else mead would spill out. The squire looked around. All right, here's the deal. If the old man went into the forest for him, he could ride the squire's horse. The deal was that the thief had to steal the horse out from under the squire, not just some random guy. Deal? The old man nodded and the pair traded places with the old man riding off to check the woods, and the squire standing in the field with the keg of mead because seriously, that actually worked. It was a good 15 minutes before the squire became annoyed and took his finger out of the keg, and he heard laughter. Ha ha, ten dollars more, he heard from inside the keg. He dared to look inside and saw two eyes staring back at him. It was only then that he learned the guy who had ridden off with his horse on the day he told the thief to steal the horse from him was the thief, stealing the horse from him. Also, the thief somehow knew the squire would give up before the woman he paid $20 to laugh at the squire suffocated inside the keg. It was the final night. The final test. The master thief couldn't possibly complete this task because the squire was going to kill him. The task was this. The master thief was to steal the squire's bedsheet from his bed that night and his wife's shift, basically her nightgown, which, yeah, I bet she was so happy about being dragged into this. This was all just a pretense, though, to get the youth onto his property at night so the squire could shoot him with a rifle, as the squire was aiming to do when he saw the thief's silhouette crest the horizon. Y you know, if you invite someone to your property and then shoot them, that's murder, right? The squire's wife said to the squire. But, of course, the squire wasn't listening. And bang, the squire said, the shot ringing out across the sleeping countryside. Ooh, first shot, too. Which is great, because this thing takes like five minutes to reload. You were right, milady. That was murder. So now I have to go cremate a body. Lock the door and don't open it for anyone but me. Oh, and keep the light off. We don't need the neighbors saying we were up. It was several minutes later that the squire returned, saying that the thief was burning. His servants had been keeping the fire hot and ready for him. He got into bed, kissed his wife goodnight, and sighed. Shoot. His wife was about to ask what was wrong, but she felt it. Blood. He had blood all over him from carrying the body, and he just got it on their sheets and, yes, her. He told her to get out of bed while he stripped it. He'd be back with a new set and, oh, her bed closed too. Give him here. He told her not to wait up. He'd burn this too and then scrub himself clean. 
Good night. The wife laid down on the rough bed and pulled the blanket over her. It was actually just a few minutes later, when she was closing her eyes, that she heard a noise at the door. Why isn't this locked? Didn't I tell you to lock this? Also, where are your cl- uh, Oh, no. I already came back, didn't I? The wife nodded. And I asked for your clothes and bedsheet. Fantastic. The task was completed with as little as a bucket of goat's blood and the dead body of a thief that the youth had found hanging in the village. It was actually one of the youth's old band that had been caught. Well, a lot of them had been caught. But the youth just picked the one closest in age to himself and held the body up in front of him as he walked to the squire's farm that night. When the body was hit, both of them dropped to the ground, and the youth tossed some blood on the body and himself, waiting for the squire to come and go before he rushed inside himself. After that, not wanting to be seen as a man who went against his word five times, and also because the man he couldn't seem to best could now blackmail him for attempted murder, the squire finally relented and allowed the master thief to join his family. Besides, the guy had stolen his bedsheets and his wife's clothes from them at night. What was next? Him stealing the squire's eyes from his head? At this point, it was better to have the youth on his side than against him. So, that's how the story of the youngest son ends. The young man who was abandoned by his father and became a master thief became the son of a squire. And if he stole again, the story says it was only for the fun of it. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with something new. But if you're looking for more, there are 40-plus member episodes on the Myths and Legends member feed. Check that out at support.mythpodcast.com. Oh, and the store is back up and running at mythpodcast.com store. We have new t-shirts, new colors, and an awesome sticker back. Check it out. The creature this week is a scalopendra from medieval European legends, and also kind of the modern day. Imagine a shark that was also venomous. That's bad. But it also can walk on land, so no one is safe ever. Also, the shark has hairy nostrils with long, Favio-flowing locks. Not sure why that's a relevant detail, but it's right there in the medieval bestiaries. It's a little bit more than a shark, though. It's a long, snake-like creature with dozens of little points beneath it and a flayed, fish-like tail. That should actually sound like another creature because, well, it is another creature. It's a centipede. The name is apparently Latin for waterfall, and there was a centipede discovered in the last decade a waterfall that was serendipitously named after this creature. And it's somehow scarier than the legend. It's only been seen in Southeast Asia, and it's about 8 inches long. It's the first amphibious centipede ever discovered, and it can move as easily on land as it can in water. So, now you get to worry about massive, venomous centipedes that can swim as powerfully as an eel when you go into the water. The real insect is actually pretty similar to the mythical monster, what with its poison and legs and ability to move seamlessly between water, earth, and your nightmares. The only difference is that, when the myth is caught by a fish hook, they can vomit up their stomach, and not just the contents of their stomach, but the stomach itself, to get free from the fish hook and get away. I mean, I'm assuming the nearly foot-long centipede can't do that, though they just discovered it less than five years ago, 
and they've only found three of them. So, you know, I guess it's still a possibility. Cool. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.